and welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today on what is now our 26th episode. Pretty epic that we've hit number 26 because that means we are halfway through a year, which is pretty... Mm, good streak. Yeah, it's good. We've um, actually been able to release a podcast episode every single week since last December, which is, yeah, pretty awesome. Mm. Um, so today you are joined by your hosts, as always, Tiara and Jack. And today we are going to be giving you a bit of a life update and also answering a bunch of great listener questions relating to nutrition. So Jack, I'll let you kick it off. What has been up with you for the past few weeks? So yeah, just been training as per usual. Training's been going well. I did have a little bit of a back flare-up last after my leg day last Tuesday. And in the past, I probably would have still trained through it and ended up injuring myself. But I'm ending up uh, learning from my mistakes, which is great. And took it easy on the Friday leg day. And um, my previous leg day, just this past Tuesday, went really well. So I'm glad I took it easy. And in terms of nutrition, I've had some funky things going on with with that. So we went to Noosa and I ate a lot of food there. And I don't, by the way, I don't say all this with like, oh, I can eat so much food. I just more say it to reflect on what's been going on and give you guys updates. But yeah, we ate a lot of food in Noosa. It was good. And my body weight didn't really change at all. If anything, it went down. And then for the past three or four days after Noosa, so... It's Thursday now. Um, pretty much, I've had to increase my intake by about a thousand calories. Yeah, it's been insane. <laughs> and yeah, we're, not, we're actually not really sure why. Like, because I was eating around 4,500 4, 4, 4, calories, and I had to increase it to about 5,500 because my weight was literally just plummeting. And now I'm going to try going back to what it was previously because it seems to be staying a bit more consistent now. So Yeah, like I've been getting texts from Jack in the morning and he's like, my weight went down, but I ate a big snack last night. And I'm like, what did you eat last night? And he's like, "I like at 11 p.m. I had like 800 calories. <laughs> what, like, what were you eating at night? <laughs> oh, just go and raid the fridge. Like at that time of night, I don't really worry too much about the macro composition because... Obviously, I've already hit my macros and everything, and yeah, so... So, how do you determine if, like, you need more food? Like, how how do you determine that late at night? I mainly base it off just... I just know my body really well, and if I'm going to bed, like, I... If I'm going to bed hungry, like that's a massive indicator for me that I do I need to be getting more food because there's no way I should be hungry at this point in time. Yeah, and especially because your dinners are huge. Yeah, and also how lean I'm feeling. Like I can tell when I'm really full of food and full of like my glycogen, glycogen stores are very high and I can tell when they're not and that's another indicator as well. Do you do like the ab in the mirror test? No, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> well, then how do you tell? <laughs> I don't know. It's just just good connection with the body. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And what's been going on with, with you and clients? So, yeah, I've had some great progress with that, actually. So, I have a client called Simon who's come on and we're looking to do either season A or B next year, which is really exciting. And another client called Joseph, who's actually based in San Francisco, which is really awesome. And he's looking to do the Natural Olympia for INBA in November. And he recently gained his pro card in May. So congrats, Joseph. And yeah, I'm both really excited excited for them. And obviously, I've 
Lockie, who is competing season B uh, this year as well, which is, and he's looking awesome. So yeah, he just wrapped up like a two week diet break and his skin folds went down, didn't they? Mm, yeah. He's been like one of those guys. He responds very, very well to, to a deficit. So yeah. And he's, he's been working really hard, of course. So man, that is awesome. What an epic few weeks. So how's everything been going with you and your cut? Yeah, well, my cut's been really good. So essentially, I've been dieting for now like six weeks, essentially. But I'd say I've only actually been dieting for five and a half of those. I've had about four days off. One was my birthday. And then the other three days, Jack and I went to Noosa just this past weekend. It's kind of like an annual trip for us because his parents have a conference down there. Oh, wait up there actually um, up the Sunshine Coast every single year and they get to go to the doctor's conference and Jack and I get to tag along and just go to the buffet and the resort and the pool and the beach and it's always really nice and yeah so um, had about three days off there because heck man this is my life and you know like if I have the, an opportunity to go to a buffet or something like that I'm not going to binge but I'm also not going to necessarily restrict myself. So yeah, and also on my birthday, I turned 22 about two weeks ago, and I woke up singing Taylor Swift, which was really fun. But yeah, and then I, again, had a really nice dinner that night with my family. My dad made his world-famous burritos, and heck, I wasn't really thinking about mini-cutting on my birthday. So yeah, had about four days off, but in general, like, again, it's about consistency over time, you know? four days in comparison to an eight-week cut, it's not going to inhibit me from getting my results. But uh, in general, the mini cut has actually been going really, really well. So I started off, my first weigh-in was at 70.7 kilograms, and now I'm between 67.1 and 67.5. So it kind of fluctuates there depending on hydration status, but that's really good. And then essentially I've decided to um, extend it for another three weeks. I'd really like to get down to around 65 kilograms. And then following that, I'm going to be maintaining that weight slash allowing myself to maybe gain about an extra kilogram, which will predominantly just be glycogen from just increasing my carb intake. And yeah, trying to get my calories up as high as possible for those following two months. And then I start my competition prep for season A 2020 on the 31st of August, which should just be freaking awesome. I am so excited. And yeah, other than that, I've just been on top of the world because Jack and I have now finished our Master's of Dietetics degree. You know, we submitted all of our assignments about two weeks ago now. So, you know, like uni is just done. We're really just waiting to graduate now, but we don't actually graduate until the 18th of July, which is about a month away. And that's just when we really get our certificate. But like, dude, can we even, can we just call ourselves dietitians yet? Like, technically, we're finished, right? Yeah, I guess no one's going to stop us, right? Yeah, so. I don't know. Like, I'd love to hear someone else's opinion. Like, do you really have to wait till graduation to call yourself a dietitian? Or, I don't know, because it's really just about being handed that piece of paper. But, like, in all honesty, we're done, man. And, ah, oh, it's the best feeling in the world to never have to do another freaking assignment or report. And, yeah, we're just moving forward with our business and 
Training's really good. Ooh, speaking of training, Jack and I just signed up for a new gym this week. Yeah, we signed up, uh, signed up at World Gym Brisbane, and it's been a long time coming. We know a lot of people who train there. The equipment's about 100 times better than what's at UQ. Oh, it's so good, <laughs> man. All the hammer strength equipment, like it's all plate loaded. So good. Mm, and yeah, really good value as well. And can't wait to, we're going to train there as much as we can. And yeah, I'm so pumped already just training there like three or four days. Literally, like whenever we go to Worlds, I feel like it's some sort of time warp. We just lose track of time. Like we went to Worlds Gym Maruchidor on Saturday and we were legit there for like four hours, which was absolutely nuts. <laughs> but hey, like, I don't know. I, I just love it. Whenever I'm there, I feel like I just want to train everything. So yeah, it, it's a great atmosphere, great place to be. And I can't wait to keep training there for the next year and onwards. Yes. Yeah, so we have a nutrition themed episode this week and we asked everyone for their nutrition related questions and we actually got quite a few. So we're excited to answer all of them. Some of them are really good. So I thought we'd start off one by Zach Martin, and he asks, how to know if you've gone hypoglycemic during a workout and tips to avoid it. Hmm. So for those of you who don't know what hypoglycemia is or when you are hypoglycemic, it's when your blood sugar levels go quite low to such an extent where you experience some negative side effects. So what would they be, Tierra? So for example, you might have spells of dizziness. You might feel quite faint. You might get like kind of like a cold rush or like a cold sweat yeah like a cold sweat essentially it's when your blood glucose levels drop below a homeostatic range so below around that four millimoles and it can be very very dangerous however i don't think that people actually suffer true hypoglycemia during a workout no i think it's it's unlikely unless you have type 1 diabetes Mm -hmm. and yeah i think for those people who don't have type 1 or 2 diabetes it's unlikely to be fully like properly dangerous and but for those who have type 1 diabetes obviously they have to uh, use exogenous insulin uh, which for those of you don't know basically stores your blood glucose as glycogen it's a storage hormone but yeah i was actually telling tiara speaking to her before this and a lot of people do talk about insulin but forget to mention glucagon so glucagon is the opposite of insulin it basically uh, breaks down your glycogen to supplement your blood glucose levels so i know in a contest prep it's quite common for people to experience hypoglycemia and that's one of the main reasons for that for that is just due to lower energy input and lower glycogen levels and therefore lower blood glucose levels potentially as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so essentially glucagon is released from the alpha cells of your pancreas, whereas insulin is released from the beta cells of your pancreas. And again, they oppose one another. So insulin is anabolic, it's going to store glucose, but then when we're in a catabolic state, that for example, when we're exercising or when we're fasted, glucagon is going to be released from the pancreas and glucagon acts on various receptors throughout the body and like jack alluded to before it helps to break down glycogen into glucose and it actually raises your blood glucose levels so that they can stay at that homeostatic range yeah so we'll get on to tips to avoid it and i think this will be beneficial to a lot of competitors so essentially One of the reasons you might be going hypoglycemic is if you have a lot of, especially when you're dieting, you have a lot of high GI foods. So a lot of 
uh, foods that are quick to break down and that would basically create a spike a massive spike in blood glucose and then that is always prone to plummet quite quickly as well and when you plummet you then go below that homeostatic range for blood glucose and how can we fix this so essentially you want to be having foods that are lower gi so foods that digest at a slower rate and therefore you have a slower release of basically blood glucose over time so what would be some examples of that so instead of having your rice bubbles with protein powder and milk, maybe having something like wheat bix or having potatoes, wholemeal bread, and even just a mixture of high GI and low GI. It doesn't. So for example, you could have a like maybe wheat bix with honey. So honey would obviously be high GI, wheat bix low GI. Yeah, but again, most people eat mixed meals, and the glycemic index of a food is going to be highly influenced by what you're mixing with that meal. So if you have a fat source with your meal, or if you have a protein source with your meal, then that's also going to slow down the release of blood glucose too, as well as the fiber content as well if you're eating whole grains. But again, a lot of competitors are people who are at a very low body weight or people who are have just very high insulin sensitivity and are very active can sometimes experience these feelings of hypoglycemia because they're just so insulin sensitive. So for example, when they consume a high amount of carbohydrates and that's absorbed, their cells are very sensitive to that so they will absorb that glucose very quickly, causing a lowering of blood glucose levels. As well, when we are exercising, that induces a cellular response that doesn't actually require insulin to signal for the GLUT4 receptor to come out. That will come out already through exercising. So when we exercise, our cells are a lot more likely to take up blood glucose as well. So, you know, if you just eat a meal and then you start going for a run or you start exercising, that glucose from your bloodstream is going to be quickly soaked up into your cells. That was a good answer. So kind of all over the place. (laughs) So yeah, hopefully we answered that fairly clearly and we probably gave a little bit of scientific background, which hopefully you found informative. So moving on to the next question by Guy, he asks nutrition information panel accuracy and weighing foods, which is the limiting factor and how does this affect IIFYM? So a nutrition information panel is basically the nutrition information on the back of a uh, food product, so like protein cups, fats, etc. So for those of you who don't know, we've discussed this before, but basically any of your packaged products in the supermarket only actually has to be within 25% accuracy. So for example, if it says 100 carbs per serving on the back, it could be 75 or it could be 125. Yeah, exactly, because... These nutrient information panels are really just created from averages of averages, and it's so difficult to actually determine the exact amount of macronutrients and the exact amount of calories within a specific food, especially when it's produced on a factory level. Mm. So to answer Guy's question, I would say definitely the nutrition information panel accuracy is a limiting factor because you can obviously weigh foods quite accurately with food scales Mm -hmm. and ultimately this if you're if you do have a very very diet and include a lot of packaged products into your diet instead of maybe like whole foods and that even packaged vegetables and like if you're using the information panel on the back of packaged salad 
it still could be varied. Exactly. Like Jack and I have gone to the supermarket before and we'll look at two packages of corn and we'll be like, what the hell? They're both corn, but one says that it has double the carbs. Mm. <laughs> like, which one should I buy? So I guess this kind of busts the myth why you will never hit your macros perfectly so you never actually truly know how many macronutrients or how many calories you're taking in but i think that's an argument for why especially if you're on a very strict diet for example a contest prep you really should focus on eating whole foods because i think that compared to packaged foods with a whole bunch of ingredients and each one of those ingredients the macros and the calories are taken from averages of averages if you're just eating whole foods like just a potato or just a banana and you're consistently eating those i think there's a much higher level for accuracy there with actually getting the estimated or more correct amount of calories and macros Hmm. Yeah, like definitely the biggest thing and our biggest recommendation for this is just consistency, consistently using the same entry and trying to use the same product as well. But then there also comes the issue of having adequate food diversity in your diet. So ultimately, like in a contest prep, I would try and promote consistency. However, in the off season, you can obviously having food diversity is very important. So it's not as big of a deal. But like for me, even if, say if my usual brand of, I don't know, corn isn't in stock, then even if I buy a different brand, I'm going to use the same reading that I usually do on my fitness power because ultimately how much, it's not going to change. <laughs> and for all we know, dude, it's probably all coming from the same farm. Yeah. Like, you know, you think about these things like packaged oats and you go to Kohl's and there's like 10 or 15 different brands of oats. Like, do you really think there's 15 different oat farms? Like... <laughs> I don't think so. I think they're all coming from the same place. <laughs> I, I guess we will just throw in one more tip there that if you are here in Australia and you are weighing fresh food, whenever you type it into MyFitnessPal, so let's, for example, if you were weighing a carrot, type in carrot and then after that type in nut tab. So that's N-U-T-T-A-B. And that's going to give you the most accurate reading for that fresh produce here in Australia. Because that's Including from the Aust- meats as well. Yeah, all, all fresh foods. So fruits, vegetables, even whole grains. Yeah, meats, Meat, fish, eggs. eggs. Um, but that's going to give you the Australian database and the most accurate measure for mm. that. Yeah, it's, it's life-changing. Yeah, nut tab. <laughs> so this next question is asked by Jay Casanato. 11. <laughs> So off days, in brackets, rest day, diet, differ than training day or mostly the same, carb, protein, and fat-wise? Yeah, so I think that this is an interesting question, and I think it's going to be highly individual because some people actually like to change their macronutrient split on a training day versus a rest day. And from what Jack and I have seen is the most common thing is that people generally go higher carbohydrates on their training days and lower fats. But then on their rest days, some people like to go much higher fats and then lower carbs. Mm. And I think our answers will be controversial compared to what other people think. But essentially, we don't see that it's necessary to have a, a very high fat lower carbohydrate approach because a lot of people say they do this because they think that their enzymes get tired of processing all the carbohydrates. Man, they're just sleepy, man. (laughs) Too many carbs. They're just enzymes falling asleep. (laughs) 
So yeah, we don't really agree with this. And so both of us still go high carb, low, moderate to low fat on our rest days. And the only reason I would advocate going for a higher fat, lower carb on a rest day, or one of the reasons is to get in more essential fatty acids on that rest day. Because if you're going a very low fat approach, like 0.3 grams per kilo, obviously you're not going to be able to fit in like your polyunsaturated fatty acids, your monounsaturated and stuff Mm. like that. So yeah, then that might even be good because for example, if someone wanted to have like a nice big salmon filet that might have close to 20 grams of fat in it or something, and then if the recommendations are that you have two serves of fatty fish a week, you could actually schedule to have that fatty fish on your rest day. Yeah, sure thing. Yeah, but I think that when you think about it from a recovery standpoint and physiologically, on your rest days, guys, like that is when your body is trying to recover and that's when you're trying to synthesize more glycogen so that the next day when you train, you have that glycogen and that energy stored so that you can have a really good training session. So I think that it is perfectly fine and I think it makes a lot of sense to keep your carbohydrate intake high on a rest day too. Because as well, when you think about manipulating things on a day-to-day basis, like things don't just happen acutely in the body. They happen over a chronic period of time. So just slightly upping your fat intake on one day in the grand scheme of things, it's really not going to do anything. And I think, yeah, again, it's just going to be a lot more beneficial for you training and performance-wise to keep those glycogen levels high. And also in terms of calories, I think that people overestimate how many calories they will actually burn on a training day compared to a rest day. And it's really not that different. Like there's been studies done and resistance training for the average person is probably only going to burn anywhere between like 150 to 300 calories per session. So it's not a huge amount. Plus on a rest day, you know, most people take advantage of that extra time. They're not in the gym and they go and run more errands. Like they might go grocery shopping, you know, or they might clean their house. They're still being active. So they're still burning through energy. And that's why I would argue that you don't actually, in most cases, necessarily need to change your calories on a rest day compared to a training day, unless your calories are extremely high and you have extremely long workouts. Like I know I don't change my calories on rest days versus training days, but I know that Jack does because his rest days are slightly less active than his training days because your training days are just nuts, man. Yeah, and I don't walk as much on a rest day because obviously I'm walking around the gym during a training day. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last point I'll add to this is ultimately it's very personalized. So another reason for having a higher fat approach, it will be if you are having to eat a lot of food and you just can't get in the necessary volume of calories through carbohydrate. So that's just another example. But ultimately, if you're in a surplus and you do eat a heap of fat, it will get stored as fat. Yeah, it's a lot more likely to be stored as body fat than carbs because fatty acids just can't be converted into glucose in the body. Sweet. All right. So another question. So this one's asked by Shane and he says, why they bring out all this new delicious foods while I'm in prep? Why? (laughs) Why did they do this to him? (laughs) That's just how it works. Yeah, I know that. (laughs) The food companies run the analysis and then they strategically place it. Yep. It's season A and season B. That's when all the new products come out. (laughs) So 
Lucas asks a great question as well. Opinions on apple cider vinegar with mother. And if it works, what are the mechanisms involved? All right. So we've spoken about apple cider vinegar before in our myth busting podcast, which was really fun. We had a great response to that. But I guess to answer the first question, it says apple cider vinegar with the mother. So you guys might have heard of with the mother, (laughs) (laughs) the mother, not the father. But yeah, the mother of apple cider vinegar. So essentially when apple cider vinegar is made, what they do is they add yeast uh, to the apples and it ferments and it creates acetic acid and what essentially the mother is, is it's developed through the fermentation process and it's got a quite a few probiotics in there and it's got a few strands of protein and you guys can actually see it in some of the jars. It's like kind of this like funky cloudy clump that's like (laughs) hanging around in the jar and that's what's said to be you know hold all of the health benefits because it's got probiotics and protein and things like that but Guys, the truth is like apple cider vinegar, it's really not all it's cut out to be. If anything, it's just equivalent to any other type of vinegar like balsamic vinegar or red wine vinegar. And apples will give you the same benefit as the apple cider component of vinegar. Yeah, exactly. The nutritional component like apples and apple cider vinegar, pretty much the same nutritional profile for B vitamins and polyphenols. And in terms of research, there's actually been no research done on healthy individuals with normal blood glucose levels, normal insulin sensitivity, a normal body weight. It's really only been done on type 2 diabetics and overweight individuals who have insulin insensitivity. And what they find is that when they supplement with apple cider vinegar, so actually taking like apple cider vinegar shots, it can help with their insulin sensitivity and slowing the release of blood glucose. But again, that's only in overweight and type 2 diabetics. So that's essentially the mechanism behind it. But again, like you don't really want to be drinking vinegar because it can uh, erode your teeth and erode the enamel on your teeth. Um, <laughs> yeah, like what? What else would you say? Yeah, you basically summed it all up. Uh, there's no reason to punish yourself by drinking apple cider vinegar when you can put balsamic vinegar on a salad and have an apple at breakfast. I think. Yeah, exactly. Like it's totally fine. Like put vinegar on your salad and that's good. But again, you just like some things are good, you know, for us, but a lot of any, basically every fruit and vegetable and Mm. whole grain is good for us. Probably my most asked question is what is like, is one vegetable better than another or a statement that one is better than another, but essentially anything that comes from the ground, unless it's poisonous, mushrooms from france (laughs) but like yeah every fruit and vegetable has different properties and will have different benefits so there's no one magic yeah there's no hierarchy you know it's all a level playing field and just pick and choose and eat what you like but yeah you don't have to um just eat a whole bunch of one thing because it's such a superfood but yeah i guess that's we we talked about apple cider vinegar before All right, so this next question is by Lulis Fines, and it says, alternative cereals to oats for someone who hates porridge. First off, I'm so sorry to hear that you hate porridge, because that's like my favorite food in the world. <laughs> but, you know, everyone's different. Maybe you need to make it for her. 
oh, yes, I could make you with my cocoa and my chia seeds and cinnamon, and you would have actually a very good time. Anyway, um, alternative cereals. But actually, what I've started making recently, which I love, is what I do is I blend 100 grams of wholemeal flour with 10 grams of cocoa and a little bit of sweetener, and I blend that with about 500 milliliters of water. I use a stick blender. And then I microwave that for about five to six minutes, and it's just wonderful. It's kind. It's I wouldn't say you haven't reinvented the wheel. It's just cream of wheat. Oh, it's but it's like chocolate cream of wheat, man. It's so good. Anyway, it's it's warm. It's perfect for these winter mornings. I love it. So yeah, it's essentially like cream of wheat. (laughs) Yes, my friends, it's essentially chocolate cream of wheat. Okay. Anyway, that's what I love. What what what's another alternative for you? Uh, so for me, something like wheat bix and I haven't never had them before, but grits similar to porridge, but yeah, practically any other cereal really there's, unless it's obviously both of us would go for something that's lower, lower in added sugar and probably more whole grainy. So something like, yeah, wheat bix or just right cereal. Yeah. Any, any sort of muesli kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. It really depends on what you like. Uh, I love Raisin Bran, but I, I wonder if you just hate oats or if you actually hate the porridge texture, mm. because if you just hate oats, then you can always try, you know, things like cooked buckwheat. You can try cooked quinoa. That's really yummy as well. But if you actually hate that texture, then it's probably going to be more going for a cold cereal or like a cold kind of muesli. I even had wheat mix the other day with warm milk. It was pretty good. Mm. For winter yum so this next question is asked by neil and he asks i'd love to know the difference between whole proteins versus protein powder how does the liver process so essentially before it actually gets to the liver any sort of protein source is going to be broken down into dipeptides and tripeptides within your stomach and within your small intestine before those are absorbed into your hepatic portal vein. But essentially, it's all just amino acids, you know? And once it actually gets to your liver, it's all going to be processed the same. Yeah, the the first thing I would actually say to answer this question is protein powder is whole protein. Oh, yeah, of course. It's whey protein. Yeah. Yeah. And, like, if you had yogurt, that's just a mixture of whey protein and casein protein. Mm -hmm. So, like, your body doesn't discriminate between the two. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, yeah, once it gets to your liver, your liver doesn't have a little brain. And it's like, hey, I know this came from steak. Or, hey, I know that came from a protein shake. Like, to the liver, it's it's just protein. And it's like, woohoo, I got more protein. What am I going to do with it? So... Yeah, if the liver had a voice, that would be it. <laughs> mm, I don't think my liver would sound like that. <laughs> well, you don't have a very cool liver, my man. <laughs> I don't think Phil Heath's liver would sound like that. <laughs> I, don't know what, I don't know what Phil Heath's liver sounds like. <laughs> Probably doesn't speak anymore, to be honest. No. <laughs> oh, man. All right. So, all right. What's the next question? So, this one's asked by David Hardgrove, and it is potatoes and weight gain. So essentially, just like the protein, your body won't necessarily discriminate between food types. It's all about the amount of energy you consume from that food type. So if anything, uh, potatoes have been ranked as one of the most satiating foods. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they are the most satiating food, eh? So yeah, you really do get a lot of bang for your buck with potatoes, especially if you have the, 
I can't remember what they're called, but they're they were potatoes with like twenty five percent lower carbs. I think that's what they're called. They're called no, but twenty five percent. It's actually a type of potato, oh. but yeah, I can't remember. Yeah, they're in Woolies and Coles. Is it charisma? It might be. Yeah, yeah something like that. But yeah, essentially, yeah, potatoes. Unless you're having French fries, which are deep fried, then potatoes yeah really satiating good source of carbs they're a vegetable high in potassium eat the skin for extra fiber yeah when i see people peeling potatoes um i don't say anything but. <laughs> i'm like why just wash, just wash off the dirt the the skin's really good the skin's got heaps mm. of nutrients and i think yeah. that's where the majority of the iron is so and yeah majority of the nutrients and fiber Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, my friend and, yeah, Kate Mellers, who we've always talked about, Kate and I always talk about how we eat potatoes strategically. So, because potatoes are so satiating, meaning that they'll keep you full for so long, for example, we always have, like, a bunch of potatoes, like, before a long leg session because they'll just satiate us, provide us with a good amount of energy throughout the whole session. And there's not, nothing worse than becoming hungry during a session. So, yeah, you can eat potatoes strategically. They're really good. But like Jack said, you know, potatoes, just like any other food, it's only going to be an issue if they're very calorically dense, like if they are made into mashed potatoes with heaps of cream and butter and milk or if they're deep fried or they're dipped in like sour cream or something like that. So this next question is by RC16Fitness. And it says, if you, for example, eat fats with your whey protein isolate, then will the protein be digested slower? So the short answer to this is yes. And, but it does depend on how much fat you're eating and which of them you eat first. So what I would do is just drink the whey protein, wait five to 10 minutes and eat your fats. Yeah. What? I don't even know what kind of meal that would be. Nuts and whey protein or a scoop of peanut butter. Oh, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're just a short answer to that one. But yeah. ultimately it doesn't really matter too much unless you're in, I don't know, like a comp prep or... Yeah, I wouldn't be worried too much unless you're having like 30 grams of fat. But I would say up to 10 grams of fat is perfectly fine. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be perfectly fine. And in the grand scheme of things, like it's still going to take... Grand scheme. Grand scheme. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's still going to take a while for that protein to digest anyway. So I think even a whey protein shake can take up to an hour to digest too. So eh, it's not going to be like zoom, like within like five minutes or something. But again, just trying to make your pre and post workout meals within four to six hours of one another and you should be all sweet like don't sweat the small stuff so this next question is by anvir and it says should i be eating white rice instead of brown rice because of the phytic acid content so for those of you who don't know phytic acid is basically like a compound that has been known to inhibit the absorption of nutrients yeah so nutrients like magnesium iron zinc yeah, and oxa- oxalic acid is another one mm-hmm. and that also inhibits, and tannins in tea and coffee. So essentially, yeah, we discussed this a little bit before the podcast. And yeah, and we usually do that for questions that we like to discuss and mm-hmm. um, for those that maybe we're a little bit more unsure about. We try our best to prepare for this thing. <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah, definitely nothing to worry about unless you're consuming like the majority of your nutrients from that meal with the brown rice or if you're having like a shitload of brown rice. (laughs) 
Yeah, because essentially I think that the pros of eating brown rice are going to outweigh any small negative that you would get from the phytic acid. And I think that brown rice is relatively low in phytic acid anyway, and it's so much more rich in nutrients anyway. So even if it was to inhibit a small amount of absorption, you would still be absorbing more and like have access to more nutrients than you would get from white rice because white rice doesn't contain it. Mm. Yeah, I 100% agree. Yeah, but I do want to make a good point that there is no reason to fear white rice either. Mm. Like, white rice is a perfectly fine food too. I would say if if you want, you can just get a mixture of both. Yeah. So, Handel asks another fiber-related question, and that he states, any rule slash guidelines as to how cooking time affects the fiber content in vegetables? So yeah, this is a good question. And it's also similar to people asking, like if I Nutribullet my greens, will the fiber uh, be lowered? But yeah, the answer is no to both of them. Like the fiber stays the same, unless it'd be a bit different if you were like baking it and you literally like turned it black. That would probably, like you would, your charcoal would charcoal fiber. I don't think you'd be eating that, man. <laughs> well, I think you would because you don't like to waste any food. That, that is true, but it might be a different story if I burnt an entire cake. <laughs> a fiber cake. <laughs> but yeah, essentially, yeah, the best analogy I can give is, is like the blending it. Like if you're blending something, the fiber just gets broken down more. It doesn't necessarily disintegrate. Yeah, fiber and is actually incredibly small. Like I don't think you can see fiber with the naked eye. So when you're blending food or cooking food, really it's just breaking down the starch and it's just making it softer. And again, so that when you chew that food, you can chew through it more, it breaks down into smaller pieces. And then when it gets into your stomach and also your small intestine, there's more surface area for enzymes to attack that food. So it's just a smaller particle size. Mm -hmm. So like, it's just going to take less time for your body to digest it. Mm. Yeah. So that's our answer to that one. (laughs) The next question is by Mike in Australia. And he asks, hey, Tierra, what's your opinion on intermittent fasting versus distributed meals? Yeah, so we've touched on this quite a bit, so I think we can cover this one quite quickly. So first, it really is going to come down to personal preference, what works best for you, what works best for your schedule, but also if like performance and body composition is your primary goal, especially muscle hypertrophy, then I would recommend more distributing meals or at least distributing your protein throughout the day just to maximize muscle protein synthesis. But again, if calories are equated, you know, it's really not going to make much of a difference at all. I would just watch out for tendencies for just eating really large meals and perhaps tendencies for binging almost. And also it just like being absurdly full with like an entire day's worth of food in one meal can be very, very uncomfortable. But again, it's going to be so individual. Yeah, I agree with everything Tierra just said. So what's the next question? All right. So this next one is by Merles and she asks, does macro timing around workouts affect muscle hypertrophy? So yes, I would say acutely, probably not, but chronically yes so if you have a day or two where uh, you eat out of schedule or something then that's fine obviously however if you're for example waking up and doing a completely fasted workout every single day for years 
then yes, I think compared to if you do a workout after breakfast or in the afternoon, then you will find there's a difference. Yeah, it's actually pretty damn cool. They're coming out with new studies now and they've been posting them in mass showing that people who eat breakfast versus those who don't eat breakfast before a resistance training session, like those who eat food actually perform better in terms of they can lift heavier weights and they can lift them for more reps. And over a chronic time period, that is going to lead to more muscle hypertrophy because you're getting stronger and you have more training volume. Mm. So essentially just the two key points here is getting an a serving of protein to spike muscle protein synthesis. So about 0.4 grams per kilo. Mm-hmm. And the second factor is ensuring that you have adequate carbohydrates to fuel your energy as well. Yeah. And I'd say that if your macros allow it at least one gram per kilogram of body weight of carbohydrates, at least an hour or two before your workout. And it's the exact same after your workout. Like it's not super complicated, but those would be pretty good guidelines just to ensure that you have energy to crush it. The next question is by Anvir and it asks, is creatine heat sensitive at all? E.g., can I mix it into my oats and microwave it? So, yes, there is some evidence to suggest that it is slightly heat sensitive. Although, from anecdotal experience, for me, I microwaved creatine in a like a cake, protein cake, for months, and I didn't notice any difference in my. Because usually, when you do you stop loading creatine, your body water decreases and stuff like that, and I didn't notice any of that. And the only the recommendation I would give is just increasing it by a few grams if you know you're going to microwave it. Yeah, but at the same time as well, like for omnivores, they're like if they're not supplementing creatine, your main source of dietary creatine is through meat and fish and animal products. And I would hope that you're cooking your steaks <laughs> and, you know, you're still getting creatine from that. So even though it's slightly heat sensitive, I definitely think that it is still fine to heat and you're still going to absorb the majority of it. And I'll just add in here because another one of my friends, Tarsala, she asked whether or not creatine is vegan and whether or not creatine is safe for vegans to consume. And I thought I'd just make a point that creatine is a protein and it can be formed through glycine and arginine. And yes, they can create creatine within a lab setting, so they don't have to extract the creatine from animal products. So yes, creatine can be created synthetically and it is perfectly fine for a vegan to consume. So this next question is asked by Holly. How do you figure out how many grams of protein, fats, and carbs is in food? So... I'm assuming this means like when you don't have access to like the nutrition label and you're out and about because otherwise you can just scan the nutrition label and line it up with the the packaging and see if it is accurate on my fitness pal. And then you just weigh the food entered into my fitness pal, how many grams you ate. But otherwise, it really just comes down to practice and judging, looking at the protein, fats, and carbs on your plate and just approximating, getting the most accurate reading on MyFitnessPal that you think is relevant. So like, say, if you have like a Pokeball, not, not, not Pokeball, Pokeball. A, po- a Pokemon ball. <laughs> Pokeball. Then you would just say if you get chicken, then if they use chicken breast, just approximating how much cooked chicken that is, uh, what sort of vegetables they are, and then how many, like, is it half a cup of rice, a full cup of rice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's all going to be estimates. I'd say, though, if you're estimating, though, 
try to be a bit generous mm. you know it's it's usually better to actually maybe best to overestimate especially when foods are like cooked in oils and stuff like i used to work in a thai restaurant and the amount of oil that they will add to your cashew nut stir fry or curry is just nuts so yeah <laughs> pun it's, intended or unintended well, <laughs> um pun slightly half intended <laughs> no i think that was unintended <laughs> Okay, next question. So this one is from RR Gina Aldo. By Ren. Oh, wait, they said their name was Ren. Their name is Ren. My name is Ren. What types of bread are best to eat that make you bloat the least? So this is a very individual question. So yeah, what and for example, like what defines what bread is the best to eat? Like what criteria are we basing that on? So mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like saying what exercise is the best for me. Um, But yeah, essentially, for most people, I would say bread is perfectly okay to eat. It's only when you have something like uh, celiac disease or you are intolerant to something like gluten, then you do have to be more aware of the types of bread you're consuming. But yeah, any sort of bread is good. It's just different. Like the white bread will obviously be more processed, lower in fiber and B vitamins, whereas your wholemeal bread with lots of seeds and nuts will be higher in fiber, higher in fat because of the nuts and more B vitamins, etc. So it all depends on what you want. There's no, there's no good or bad really. Yeah, it's exactly. just different. Yeah, exactly. It's it's almost impossible to answer this question. And it just comes down to the quantity of bread you're eating too. Like I like if someone has one piece of toast versus eight pieces of toast, you might just be bloated because of the food volume and you ate eight pieces of bread. Mm. So yeah. All right. So But if you do are getting bloating from bread, go and see a dietitian and they can help you. Yeah, for sure, because there is a potential that you might be intolerant to gluten. Yeah. Actually, a little fun fact that I learned from shadowing one of our sports dietitians is that in order to actually have a test to see if you are celiac, what you need to be doing is you need to be eating the equivalent of six slices of bread every single day for six weeks straight before you can go and have a blood test to see if you actually have celiac disease, which is pretty nuts, I think. Mm. Yeah. But again, that's an equivalent. So actually for the average person, you know, eating two slices of bread, a little bit of pasta, you know, a little bit of cereal every day, you probably would get up to that gluten threshold, but that's just a little fun fact. Mm, Very fun. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So we have our three questions by growing underscore Lil. So the first of which is vegan meals while trying to build muscle. Hmm. So yeah, we've covered this before, but we'll answer it quite succinctly. So there are a number of things to watch out for when you're vegan, but in terms of building muscle, uh, the main point is just the uh, getting a complete protein serving uh, with each of your protein servings. So for example, Uh, The plant-based foods do not contain all the essential amino acids. Some do, such as quinoa, but it takes, you'd have to eat a lot of quinoa in order to get the leucine threshold, which is about two grams. So for example, it could look like having a beans with wholemeal bread would be one way to reach that, get a complete protein, which means all the essential amino acids and reach your leucine threshold. But you just have to be wary about the quantities you would need to eat to do that as well. Yeah, exactly. Most vegan diets are going to be 
if you're trying to get a high protein intake in, they usually are going to be quite high carbohydrate too, which is, isn't an issue at all. You can also go for things like tofu and tempeh, but if you're really trying to maximize your protein intake as a vegan, go for more beans, lentils, and pulses and chickpeas because per unit of weight, those foods, 25% of them are protein. Whereas compared to something like wheat, only 11% of the weight of wheat will be protein and something like rice is only like 7%. So those are much, much higher in protein per unit of weight compared to something like wheat or rice. Mm. And don't forget uh, vegan protein powders as well. If they just make sure that they contain all the essential amino acids, because like some companies sell brown rice protein and that's just purely brown rice protein like it's 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 pretty shitty protein yeah exactly you always want to go for a blend so usually a blend of like brown rice plus pea protein plus soy protein you can even get hemp protein in there um but yeah always going for a blend of vegan protein all right so the next question is increasing carbs versus protein while bulking same surplus different ratio Mm, so i think this is pretty interesting because Um, It's good to point out that carbohydrates are actually protein sparing. So when you're in a calorie surplus, you aren't at a risk of muscle loss or muscle catabolism because you are generally eating a higher carbohydrate diet. So if you want to, you can actually eat slightly less protein per like in terms of grams per kilogram of body weight compared to if you were cutting. So For example, you could probably eat closer to that 1.6 grams per kilogram of body weight of protein, as long as it is coming from high biological value sources as your carbohydrates go up. But this is going to be very individual. Like Jack and I both like to follow high protein diets, whether or not we're dieting or not, because man, we just love high protein. (laughs) Yeah, what I do myself is I have like a baseline of protein that I get in each meal from that is essential like a complete protein so from animal sources and then i just let as my carbs increase my protein's just going to increase as well because uh, i eat a lot of wholemeal based carbohydrates which are relatively high in protein as well mm-hmm. so for example like when my carbs were about 500 grams i was eating around 250 grams of protein per day but my carbs are about 700 now and eating around 275 so it's increased by about 25 grams yeah and there's nothing wrong with that yeah and yeah, I, you don't need to eat as much protein as that, by the way. We usually recommend about 2.5 grams per kilo. Mm-hmm, for sure. So yeah, essentially, in short, if you're bulking, higher carbs, slightly less protein. If you're cutting, slightly more protein as your carbs go down. So the final question of the episode is eating all of your daily calories in the morning before working out or the other way around. So yeah, essentially just looking at this from a purely nutrition standpoint, it's not going to be that optimal for gaining muscle because essentially you need those protein spikes throughout the whole day. And what you could do, if uh, a way of varying it would be eat the majority of your carbs and fats before and after your workout and then having those protein spikes throughout the rest of the day. But yeah, ultimately I think having four to six meals per day is going to trump everything else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's really just going to come down to what's the most sustainable for you and what sustains your energy levels too, and what is best for you in the long term. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Great. All right. So we just want to thank the listeners so much for asking all of those fantastic questions. We got a lot this week. And one last question that we always end the podcast on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, I'm going to let you go first this week. Okay. So I think I saw this on Instagram, so don't judge its credibility, but uh, (laughs) the reason why... So dogs have actually adapted their facial expressions over time to be more appealing to humans. What do you mean by that? So like like puppy dog eyes or stuff like that. Oh, okay. So I guess so they don't do puppy dog eyes to other little puppies? No. <laughs> I don't know, but I don't know. When dogs put Ev- their ear back. Evidence-based information. <laughs> but something that is evidence-based is the reason why dogs look happier compared to cats is because they have eyebrows. Mm, that is, I rem- yeah, I remember learning that in psychology. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cats always look so damn serious, like they're going to kill you. But dogs are like, hey. <laughs> Exit time. <laughs> All right. Um, so one thing that I learned this week pretty quickly is that exercise actually induces more autophagy than intermittent fasting. And for those who don't know what autophagy is, it's essentially, it's a natural process that occurs in our body during a catabolic state. And essentially it's the degradation and recycling of dead cell components. So, which is a very important thing, you know, but usually people who do intermittent fasting or are huge advocates or fasting are always preaching this word autophagy, you know? But yeah, it turns out that just performing regular exercise is actually going to induce more autophagy than intermittent fasting alone, which is pretty damn cool. And it pretty much makes sense because when you are exercising, your body is in a catabolic state. You know, you are breaking down cells, you are breaking down fuel sources for energy. So yeah, I think that's a pretty interesting little fact. But that is the end now for our 26th episode. Just want to say a huge thank you again for everyone for tuning in and listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a screenshot, tag it to your Instagram story, tag myself, tag Jack, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.